Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing and what you've already been doing this morning. And again, we give you all praise and honor and glory. Lord, you are, that seems like the theme of the songs this morning, Lord, that you are our hope, you are our life, you are our salvation. It's to you that we look for uh, peace and comfort and strength. Um, Lord, I pray that you would uh, make that even more clear today as we dive into the scriptures. I pray that you would um, really uh, show, Lord, that your word really is living and active. It's, it's double-edged, Lord. I pray that it would pierce our hearts. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, illuminate yourself. You, you would show that you are God and that you are good and that you are worthy of our faith and our devotion. Pray for every person here. God, I, I, we, we are listening. God, speak to us. I pray that you'd help us to hear and to respond in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 9. Um, <clears throat> this is actually our second week in John 9. If you guys remember, a couple weeks ago we, were, we, we landed here. Um, to, our first time through John 9, that we spent uh, basically our whole time just in the first handful of verses, and we took the time to really you know, investigate a couple of really important questions. We're going to go a little different route today. Today we're going to kind of back up. And we're going to try to look at chapter 9 as a whole. It's big, chapter 9 is basically one big, long story. It's one big narrative. It's Jesus healing a blind guy and then the explosive aftermath. Okay? So we're going we're gonna to try to try to do that. We're going to take a step back and we're going to look at chapter 9. Now, there's a lot of content here. And there's a whole lot of conversations and a lot of interactions and a lot to, to unpack Doing that, there's a danger. When you look at a lot of content, there's a danger. It's very easy to get lost in the details and miss uh, the, the kind of the main point of the passage or the main point of the story. And so what I'd like to do is, uh, you know, so that we don't miss the forest for the trees, is I want to kind of state as clearly and as simply as I possibly can, can right up front what I believe the main theme of this passage really is. I want to talk about why did Jesus do this, uh, uh, this deed, this sign, this miracle, and why did John, the writer of this gospel, choose to include it within his gospel account? Okay, so why did Jesus do what he did? And why did John choose, out of all the things Jesus did, why did he choose to include this in his book? We find the answer to that in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. I love that John included this because it really eliminates any guesswork for why Jesus did what he did. John 20, 30 and 31. John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's it. All right? These were included in this book that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, we have to remember that, that the miracles of Jesus, what Jesus did, were never meant to terminate on themselves. They were not an end in and of themselves. They were means to an end. Jesus had an agenda. And in fact, John calls them signs. They're not just miracles. They're signs. And what do signs do? Signs communicate something, right? Signs point to something else. That's the point of signs. They point to something else. Jesus' signs, according to John here, are meant to communicate who he is, that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that through faith in him, believing in him, you might have life in his name. That's what Jesus' signs were for, is to recognize that he is the Son of God and he is our only hope for life and salvation. We're going to see how this fleshes itself out in this story. So, verse 1, John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, this is Jesus, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. I told you guys last time, I really love that verse. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Here's why I really like this verse. Um, because chapter 9 comes after chapter 8. 
all right? Uh, we got to read this in context. We've got to look at it in context. Uh, do you remember how chapter 8 ends of John? Okay, it's been a few months since we talked about John 8. But basically, the religious leaders of the day pick up stones to kill Jesus. There's a, there's a violent, angry mob that wants to end Jesus' life. Now we get to chapter 9, the very next statement, and instead of Jesus running as fast as he can, as far away as he can, we see Jesus walking away, but probably not more than a handful of steps before he stops in his tracks again. At at the sight of a poor, blind beggar, Jesus is overwhelmed with compassion and he stops in his track. Instead of running away towards safety, he stops, overwhelmed with compassion, and he engages this poor, blind man. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts it. And by the way, I found this great series of sermons by Spurgeon, um, and you're going to hear me talk about him a lot today, all right? I'm, I'm going to pull some of his out. Get ready. All right, Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, he, Jesus, withdrew himself from the circle of his infuriated foes and passed through the crowd, not, I think, in a hurried manner, but in a calm and a dignified way. His disciples, who had seen his danger, gathered around him while he quietly retreated. The group wended their way with the firm footsteps until they reached the outside of the temple. At the gate there sat a man well known to have been blind from his birth. Our Savior was so little flurried by the danger which had threatened him that he paused. He he was so little flurried by the danger which had threatened him that he paused and fixed his eye upon the poor beggar. After he had withdrawn a very little space from the immediate danger, he was arrested by mercy. Oh, the divine majesty of benevolence. You hear what he's saying? Spurgeon goes on to point out, he says that this here, when we realize what Jesus did here and what he didn't do, we should see this as both food for imitation and food for consolation. Food for imitation and for consolation. In other words, if you're a Christian here today, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then we are called to be imitators of Christ. We are called to forsake our own sense of security and safety and comfort and convenience for the sake of the poor. That's what we're called to do. According to Jesus, this is what he did. We are imitators of Christ. We are being conformed into the image of Jesus. But it's not just food for imitation. This should also be food for consolation, comfort. Because we are that poor man. We we are that blind beggar. I am that blind beggar. So I see Jesus in the way that he stops and and engages this man. That's me. That, That should console me and comfort me and give me a peace and a hope. Regardless of the danger that is close behind regardless of the sacrifice that it will eventually cost Jesus, and regardless of our lowliness and our unworthiness, Jesus, God in the flesh, in all of his glory, stops. And he has compassion, and he sees us, he engages us, he gets close, and he heals us. Verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We went over these two verses in a lot of detail last time, so we're not going to spend much time here. All I'll say is this, that everybody has questions about pain and suffering. We've talked a lot already this morning about pain and suffering, disease, death, sin, sickness. We've all got questions about pain and suffering. Even the guys who had been walking side by side with Jesus for years till this point still had questions about pain and suffering. And oftentimes the conversation can get so serious that people will actually uh, 
basically reject the idea of a God or, or the idea of the biblical God because of the reality of pain and suffering. They say, well, the, the very fact that re, you know, suffering exists proves that God, the God of the Bible cannot be true. And this is how their argument sometimes goes. That the reality of pain and suffering shows that either God is not good or he's not sovereign. He's not good or he's not in control. Because after all, you know, maybe, you know, he cares about us, but he doesn't have the power to take away our suffering. Or, or he's got the power to do something, but he doesn't care enough to intervene. But friends, we know the God of the Bible is neither impotent nor is he indifferent. Amen? He is neither impotent nor is he indifferent. He's not off sitting in a deck chair somewhere. He's sitting on a throne with nails in his hands and nails in his feet and a scar on his side. He is good and he is in control and he did do something about it, didn't he? He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He entered into our suffering. He, he, we do not have a God who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He understands our rejection. He understands our pain. He understands grief at its deepest level. He entered into it, and he undid it once and for all. I think it was John Owen who said this, but death is dead through the death of Christ. Death is dead through the death of Christ. Christ became poor that he might end poverty. Christ became a curse for us so that we would not be cursed. And you may say, well, okay, but that's later. You know, that's, that, you know, he did that before for later. What about today? And that's a good point. But listen, not only as Christians do we have what Peter calls a living hope, we have that living hope that one day all things will be made new, right? The tears will be wiped away and pain will be gone and death will be dead and, you know, oh, death, where is your sting? Not only do we have that living hope for tomorrow, but today in a way that only God can, he is redeeming our pain and suffering. He is able to redeem it. I, we, we talked about this last time. God doesn't like watching us suffer. I, I say that on the authority of the Bible. Limitation 3 says that God hates our affliction. He hates it. He cried over it. He wept over it. But what a Christian knows is that although he hates it, he's also able to use it. He's able to redeem it. He's able to craft it and monitor it and maneuver it in such a way that it actually turns out to work for the good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God in his infinite mercy and in his infinite power is able to take our pain and take our suffering and give it a so that. He gives it a so that. For this blind man, it was so that the work of God might be displayed in him so that the work of God might be displayed. Well, we have to ask, what's the work of God? What is it that's supposed to be displayed through this man's suffering? And the work of God, we know, is life-giving faith. We talked about it in the beginning, John 20. It's life-giving faith. Back in John 6, some folks asked Jesus, they say, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That's a great question, right? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus responds by saying, the work, notice he says singular. They said, what must we do to be doing the works, plural? Jesus says, the, the work, singular, of God is this. He says that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You want to know what God desires of you? We all, we all do, right? We, what, what does God desire of you? That you place your faith in Jesus Christ. 
But you put your trust in him. You trust in him for your salvation. You stop looking to what you can accomplish and what you can conjure up. And instead, you put your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, not yours. You trust him as your Lord. We, we, we put our faith in him as our Lord. We say, you know, we, we recognize that the commandments given to us in the scriptures on how we are to live are not given to rob us of joy, but to give us joy. God knows what's best for us, and we trust him as our Lord. That's what he desires of us. So Jesus goes on. Verse 4, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. And by the way, I told you guys last time, I love that he says, we, we must work the works of him who sent me. It's, it's Christ's work, but he invites us in to play a role. But as we said, our time is limited, isn't it? Night is coming when no one can work. We said this last time that we, that we all have a use-by date, don't we? we all, we've all got an expiration date. Every person in this room, young and old, we all have an expiration date, a use-by date. And I don't want to be like that loaf of bread that sits in the cabinet unused and gets moldy and is wasted. I don't want to be like that, that container of milk that you buy from the store and it just sits in the fridge and half of it's left unused. I want, when my day comes, when God calls me home, whether that's tomorrow or the, or the, you know, 50 years from now, I want to be used to the last drop. I want to be that empty container that you can throw in recycling. I'm not, I'm not suggesting reincarnation with the whole recycling comment. Can I clarify? The day is here, but night is coming. God wants to use every last piece of us for the glory of his name. Verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, this is a really important statement by Jesus. This really is the, the pinnacle statement of this whole chapter because we have to remember the context that we're in. Remember, chapter 9 comes after chapter 8. Um, the Pharisees, do, you, do you remember why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus in chapter 8? Um, Jesus was standing in the temple, in the treasury, right in front of these torches during the Feast of the Tabernacle, and he yells out, I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now, why was that so scandalous for him to say that? Well, remember the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacle was an annual celebration of, of, of all the ways that God had led them and provided for them as they wandered through the wilderness with Moses. And they were celebrating, you know, how God provided them, you know, water through the living rock. And they celebrated how God had provided the manna, you know, the bread from heaven. And Jesus, during this feast, makes these statements saying, I am the living water. You know, it's through me that you can finally be quenched. He said, I am the true bread of heaven. It's only through me that you will be satisfied. Um, another, another thing they celebrated was the way that God's presence was with them and led them. And we're told that God's very glory manifested itself, uh, and at night, in, in what looked like a pillar of a fire, that's what would lead the Israelites, right? This pillar of fire that would come down and, and lead them. And so as a way of remembrance, for years after, during the feast, the Jews would light up these big torches at a certain point within the feast, and it illuminated a big portion of the city. Um, and so at this portion of the, the feast, Jesus stands in the treasury where the torches are, are held, and, uh, and, and he cries out in front, of everybody, in front of everybody, I am the light of the world. You hear what he's saying? Think about what he said, when he said it, where he said it. You put it together. The Pharisees definitely put it together because they picked up stones to kill him. That's blasphemy. Jesus is saying, I am the very manifestation of God's presence. 
I am the glory of God revealed. It's me. I am the light of the world. And the Pharisees want to kill him for it. Now, Jesus, listen, with that in mind, that's what happened in chapter 8. Now, immediately, Jesus then walks out of the temple, and he proves that he is the light of the world. He walks out, and he sees a man who is sitting in darkness, helpless, alone, in need. And Jesus again says to his disciples, I told you I'm the light of the world. Watch. Watch. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. He heals the man. He shines light in the darkness. And we talked before, you know, why, why would Jesus do it in this way? Why didn't he just snap his fingers and make the guy see? Why did he use the mud? Why did he use the dirt? I told you there's all kinds of speculation as to why Jesus would choose this method. We looked at a couple theories last time. I'll share a couple more with you today very quickly. Uh, One theory that I particularly appreciate was one that a lot of the early church fathers held. And the, the church fathers said, well, from what did God create man in the beginning? From what substance? Dirt. Right? He created dirt. Uh, In Genesis, created man from dirt. And now you've got Jesus bending down picking up dirt and applying it to the man's eyes. It's, it's a creative act. Okay? We're, we're told in Colossians, in fact, that, that God created all things through Jesus. Well, here's Jesus again, using the same substance that he did in the beginning to create that which was lacking, his sight. Okay? I, I, I think there might be something to that theory. Right? Uh, he's showing once again that he's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not even just a great prophet. He's not even just a miracle worker. He is the creator God himself. The way in which he does it proves that he is the creator God himself. Well, that's one theory. Here's another angle that we can look at this uh, through. The instrument that Jesus uses to open the eyes of the blind is the stuff of the earth. The instrument that Jesus uses to, cho- to open the eyes of the blind is the stuff of the earth. He doesn't need to use it. He chooses to use it. What does God use to open the eyes of the blind today? Stuff of the earth, right? Us, the church. He doesn't need to use us. Probably a lot easier if he didn't use us, right? But he chooses to use us. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of the battle, but victory rests with the Lord. God doesn't need the horses, but the horses are made ready for the day of the battle. He chooses to use the horses. God doesn't need to use mud like me and mud like you, but he does to accomplish his purposes. And what a joy, what a privilege that is, right? I mean, sometimes, it, sometimes it can be, we can feel as if you know, well, that's kind of just the burden of being a Christian. We've got to be used by God now. We've got to serve him. We've got to serve other people. But far from being a burden, this, being, being a tool wielded by the creator God, being a servant of the king of kings is the greatest privilege anyone could ever experience. Again, I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it. This is what he said. I don't have this one on the screen, but, but listen close to this. This is good. Brethren... Um, We are all sent as Jesus was if we are believers in Christ. Let us feel our obligation pressing on us. What would you think of an angel who was sent from the throne of God to bear a message and who lingered on the way or refused to go? 
Imagine it's midnight and the message comes to Gabriel and his fellow songsters. And they say, go and sing over the plains of Bethlehem where the shepherds keep their flocks. And here's your song. Glory to God in the highest. On earth peace. Goodwill towards men. Could you conceive that they halted or that they wished to decline the task? No. They sped joyously on their way. And your mission is not less honorable than that of the angels. You are sent to speak of good things which brings peace and goodwill to men and glory to God. To tell the poor criminal shut up in the dungeon of despair that there is liberty, or to tell the condemned that there is pardon, or to tell the dying that there is life in a look at the crucified one, do you find this hard? Do you call this toil? Should it not be the sweetest feature of your life that you have such blessed work as this to do? If tonight when the day is over... And when you're in your bedroom alone, you should suddenly behold a vision of angels who speak to you in celestial accents and nominate you to holy service in the church. You would surely feel impressed by such a visit. But Jesus Christ himself has come to you, has bought you with his blood, has set you apart by his redemption. And are you less impressed by Christ's coming than you would have been by an angel's visit? Rouse then, my brother. The hand of the crucified has touched you. The eyes that wept over Jerusalem have looked into your eyes, and they have said with all of their ancient tenderness, My servant, go. Snatch the dying sinners like brands from the burning fire by announcing my gospel. Go and go in my might. Amen? We should end right there, but we're not. Okay, we're going to keep going. What a privilege it is that, we would, that, that Jesus would choose to use people like you and me, mud like Twin Oaks Church, to bring uh, light to the blind of the city of San Jose. It's a privilege. Now, let's look at the aftermath. We're going to go a lot quicker now. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, well, then how are your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and received my sight. By the way, did you catch that? Did you catch how he referred to Jesus? He said, the man called Jesus. All right, put that in your pocket. We'll come back to that. We'll pull that out in a minute. Verse 12, they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. All right? Catch that in verse 14. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. John obviously pressed pause on the storytelling. He pressed pause on the narrative, and he gives us a really important detail right here. Um, things are about to get explosive. They're about to blow up uh, between several parties here. And John stops for a minute in verse 14, and he tells us why. He says, Jesus did all of this on the Sabbath. Now, I think most of you are familiar with what the Sabbath is, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, it was against the law given to Moses by God on, you know, on the mount back in Exodus. It was against the law to work on the Sabbath, against God's law to work on the Sabbath. And the Jews of that day saw obedience to the law as their only way to have a right relationship with God. It was their only ticket to having a right relationship with God. Therefore, when God says, it's part of my law, don't work on the Sabbath, the Jews say, well, what does that mean? I want to make sure we don't work on the Sabbath. We've got to get this thing right. What does that mean? And so the scribes get together and they put together this extra biblical list of rules uh, about what it means to not work on the Sabbath. And things got a little out of hand. For example, if you had a runny nose 
and you happen to leave your handkerchief upstairs, you could not go and blow your nose and the handkerchief, you'd be using your sleeve, right? Because going up the stairs and getting a handkerchief would be considered work on the Sabbath. Uh, you could not cut your toenails on the Sabbath. That would constituted as work. You could not, you know, knead clay or dough on the Sabbath. But wait, because that's exactly what Jesus just did on the Sabbath. He bends down, he picks up dirt, he spits in it, and then he kneads it together. The, word, the Greek word that John uses for mud is actually the same as clay or dough. And so he's actually kneading Clay, kneading mud together. Jesus broke the scribes' rules. This is why things are about to explode. What the Pharisees missed, what the scribes missed, and all of their uh, you know, efforts at self-righteousness, all of their pride, all of their self-dependence was the heart of the command. Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest, but we, need, we should ask the question, well, why? What's the significance of rest? Why do we rest? Well, we rest to be healed. We rest that we might recover. The point of resting is that we might gain our strength back. We rest that we might be restored. And Jesus restored a man on the Sabbath. That's what Sabbath is all about. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew, he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) The Sabbath is all about me. I'm where you find rest. You want to be healed? You've got to come to me and find rest. And that's where you'll be healed. I am Sabbath. I am the true Sabbath. But the Pharisees in their blindness refused to see that. They were blinded by their own pride and self-righteousness and unable to see Jesus for who he is. Verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. Notice that. Notice the progression now. He said in the beginning, this, the man called Jesus, and now he refers to Jesus as a prophet who is a man sent from God. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. And every time I read that, I'm sure you do too, you just shake your heads at the parents. The parents are, being, are afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue, which basically means being shunned from society. And so out of a desire for self-preservation, they throw their, they throw their son under the bus. They're afraid of, of being shunned by society, being persecuted, of suffering, so they literally throw their son to the wolves. Your heart just has to break for this guy. You know... You know, that, you know, the way the disciples referred to him earlier, they said, well, you know, why is this man this way? Was it because he sinned or because he was born in a family of sin? Either way, he was a moral outcast, he was a social outcast. You know that he's been, he's been, he's been basically written off by society, and apparently it seems like he's been written off by his parents. And there's no way to know for sure. We don't have enough details in the story, but I would imagine that this has probably been a pattern. That's probably why the guy's on the street begging to survive rather than being at home with his family. 
being cared for. You can just imagine the neglect and the abuse and the abandonment that this man has been experiencing for years. And again, this part of the story, if I can just tell you, has been, has been hitting very close to home as of late. Um, the last few weeks, looking at this, this chapter, um, I, it just breaks my heart. And, and I'll, I want to tell you something, and, and, I, and I, before I do that, I just want to say, I know that sharing this next little uh, story, this little, uh, it, it could come across as if I'm, I'm, I always hate it when preachers like say something, but you can tell like they, they just want to kind of be pat on the back. You know, kind of tooting their own horn. And I, and I recognize that, some, that, that this may come across like I'm doing that. And I don't want it to come across like that. And so I'm just saying I recognize the risk of doing this. But Jessica and I um, have, uh, a while ago, we, we made the decision to, to pursue foster care. We're, we're going to be a, a resource family for the foster system. You guys aren't going to cheer? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, we, we, we've begun the process of, of, of becoming a foster family. And, uh, and so as part of that process, we've been attending training sessions each week. Uh, and this last Thursday, we were at, at one of the classes, and um, we sat, and basically for the whole two and a half hours that we were there, we sat and we listened to the stories of several people who had gone through the foster system. Um, and what they did was they, they basically they shared uh, very, very honest, graphic stories about their home life that led them into the foster system. Um, and I sat, and for hours we listened to these stories, and, and I'm just going to bear my, my heart here for a second, because there was a point on Thursday night where I was sitting and I was listening to those stories where there was something, it was hard for me to even understand what was happening in my heart, but there was something that was in my heart that in that moment I actually felt the urge to cry out, stop, I don't want to hear anymore. I actually, I actually felt the urge to cover my ears. Um, I actually wanted to get up and walk out of the room because the stories were so dark and so painful. Um, again, I, I thought, what is going on in my heart right now? Um, we heard about the neglect and the abuse and the abandonment that these kids had been experiencing. I, I would tell you stories, but I won't for confidentiality. Just... Just, just know that it was heartbreaking. I could feel my heart break. And over the last few days, as I've been kind of processing what it was that was going on in my heart in that moment, here's what I think I've uh, come to realize. I have a beautiful, safe life. I have a, a beautiful wife whom I love and who loves me. We have a great marriage. We have three beautiful, happy, healthy kids Right? All of our basic needs are met. And none of those are bad things. I'm not ashamed for having a good home life. That's a gift. But what I've come to realize when I was sitting on Thursday night listening to these stories was that this darkness and this pain, what it was beginning to do was it was beginning to invade my nice little bubble that I lived in. And every natural instinct within me was saying, run, run as far as you can. Get away. Keep these things at a safe distance. Get out of this room now. Because it's not predictable, it's not safe, it's not comfortable, it's not going to help you live that American dream. Everything in me wanted to run, cover my ears and run. And again, I had, you have, we have a choice. We can listen to ourselves or we can talk to ourselves, right? I had to tell myself, Philip, this is your natural instinct, but you're not natural anymore. You have the supernatural living inside of you. 
And that's, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the same, the same is for you. The supernatural is living inside of you. You've got the Spirit of God living in your heart. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has made his home in your heart, Peter says we are made partakers of the divine nature. Jess and I were driving home on Thursday night after that class, and she looked over at me and said, Philip, can we do this? <laughs> can we handle this? And both of us, as we talked, we kind of came to the same conclusion. No, no, we can't, but Christ can. And do you know how I know that he can do it? It's because he already did. He proved it. That's what John chapter 9 is all about. That, that's what, this is the story of John 9. Jesus, in all of his holiness and in all of his glory, could have passed by at a safe distance from this moral outcast, this social outcast. He could have passed by at a safe distance. He could have written off this outcast just like everybody else had. But he doesn't. He descends. He stooped low. He got close, even at the risk of his own safety. Even when danger was nipping at his heels, it was close at hand. He engages. He gets close. He sees and he heals. Jesus said, and as he sat in that treasury in chapter 8 in front of those torches, he said, I am the light of the world. And then he walked out of the temple and he showed what it means to be the light of the world. It was an intentional display. It was a conscious portrayal. This is what it means to be the light of the world. And we need to pay attention to that because later Jesus will actually say, you now are the light of the world. We are lanterns. It's Christ's light. We are the lanterns through which the light shines. It mean, what it means to be a light of the world, it means engaging the lost and the poor. It means not keeping those who are in need or, or who are outcasts at a safe and a comfortable distance. It means getting close, meeting their needs, and pointing them to the one who can bring them true healing. We're going to wrap this up now. Verse 24. For the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And I love that. What a great reminder that we don't have to have all of the answers. We don't have to have everything all figured out before we can act as a witness to Jesus. You might be here you know, thinking, Phil, how can I be a light in the world? How can I act as a witness to Jesus? I don't, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? I don't know enough. My experience isn't vast enough. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. He, the Pharisees are quizzing him. He, he basically says, listen, I don't have all the answers. I, I can't use all of the right theological terms. I don't have all the degrees you have. I cannot answer all your questions. But here's what I can do. I can see you. I can't answer your questions, but I can see you. I was blind, but now I see. The transformation is clear. I could show you what he has done. We can't let a lack of understanding stand in the way of sharing who Jesus is with those around us. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you will not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? This guy is so snarky. I love it. <laughs> and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. Remember what the parents were worried about was what happened to the son. They cast him out. 
Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, I love that Jesus goes and looks for him. They cast him out of the temple. The Lord of the temple finds him. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You see the progression there? The man called Jesus. Jesus is a prophet, and now at the end of our story, this man falls down to his knees and starts worshiping him as Lord. And you become a Christian, you'll realize that it's it's an amazing thing about Jesus that the more we get to know him, the greater we will see him to be. Every other human relationship that we have, that's not the case, right? The more you get to know somebody, the more you see their flaws and their weaknesses and their failings, but not with Jesus. The more that we get to know him, the greater the wonder becomes. Notice, too, that Jesus doesn't stop the man from worshiping him. When the disciples, remember in the book of Acts, when the disciples are worshipped, they, they, they beg the people to stop because they said, we're mere men, we're men like you. Don't worship us. Or when the angel is worshipped, remember the angel says, don't worship me, I'm not worthy. But when Jesus here, when this man bows down and he worships Jesus, what does Jesus do? He receives it. This is absolutely unique. He, he receives it. Same thing when, when Thomas did it. Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus received his worship. Why? Because he's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. In a span of, you know, a few hours or maybe a few days, this blind man has not only received his physical sight, but far more importantly, he's received spiritual sight as well. And by the way, again, this is Jesus' intention. He comes with an agenda. This is his intention all along. Here's why... He was more concerned about the spiritual sight than the physical. was because in a matter of years, this blind man's eyes are going to close again. You know, his physical sight was healed. But in a matter of a few years, maybe a few decades, the eyes of this man are going to close again. Night is coming. Jesus is after a healing that will last on into eternity. And this is what he desires for you and me. We'll just read the last few verses, and I'll make one final comment as we close. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. What what we've seen in the story is what happens, listen, what happens when the light of Christ shines. For some they are made to see, like this man born blind. Okay? They are made to see. While others who think that they can see, in their pride, think that they've got it all figured out, think that they can see, are, they turn away and are blinded by the light of Christ. The light of Christ has the ability to either open your eyes and give you sight or blind you. This whole story begins with blindness and ends with blindness. It begins with the blindness of the poor, and it ends with the blindness of the proud. Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind, but for those who refuse to admit that they are blind, Jesus can do nothing for you. Proverbs 26 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Spurgeon again writes, he says, It's not our littleness that hinders Christ, it's our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ, it's our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back his hand. Come to Jesus, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. The problem is most of us don't have it. 
All you need is need. All you need is nothing. The problem is most of us don't have it. The light of Christ is shining today. So here's the question that we all must ask. How, how will we respond today? My hope and my prayer this week has been that every person in this room, many of you have done this, my hope and prayer is that every person in this room would humble themselves, see their blindness, see their need for a Savior, come to Jesus for rest and for healing, and cry out and worship as this man did, Lord, I believe. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus is ready. He stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let's bow our heads and pray.